Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week three of our study of the Holy Spirit and what it means to live in the Spirit. For this week, we're going to focus on us being the temple of the Holy Spirit and what it means to be called the house of God or to be called God's temple. And perhaps most importantly, does the Holy Spirit live in a dirty house? Does he live in a house that needs to be tidied up? Or will God refuse to live in a dirty house? So let's explore this today as we go into Mark chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And as you're turning there, the backdrop of this piece of scripture is right after the triumphal entry. So Jesus has already come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and they've already said Hosanna to him. They've already laid branches at his feet, and he had a wonderful time entering into the city. And that's when we will pick it up at verse 12. The word says, On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Have faith in God. And I'll stop there. There is indeed a much wider context that is to be derived from the rest of what Jesus says, but I want to focus just on this particular piece today. So we enter this scene here with Jesus and his disciples visiting Jerusalem and Jesus showing a bit of humanity in being hungry. And so he goes to a fig tree and sees if he can find any fruit, and he doesn't. And at a glance, this does not seem like a very interesting story. But if we understand more of the significance in this scene, it will make more sense as to what is the profound teaching hidden within here. So the issue is with this fig tree that we see in verses 12 through 14 is that he sees a fig tree in leaf. 
Now, the fig tree is one of the oldest trees mentioned in the Bible. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and you see when Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, what did they sew together as a garment for themselves? They sewed fig leaves. So figs have been around since the Garden of Eden. But more importantly is the characteristics of the fig tree that make it unique from other plants. And this is important, and I, I promise you there's a reason why I'm saying this. So when Jesus went up to this fig tree that was full of leaves and it had no figs on it, he cursed it, right? He told the tree that no one will ever eat fruit from you again. So there's two things to immediately see right here. First thing is that Jesus used his power to destroy something. This is not the only time he did this. The other time we can see in Scripture is in Mark chapter 5, for example, where there were some demons that were called legion, for they were many, and they were inside of a man that was crazy. And when Jesus cast out the demons, they begged him to put them in the pigs that were nearby. And they did, and then the pigs went crazy, and they jumped off a cliff, and they all died. So there are two times when Jesus manifested his miraculous power to destroy. And in this case, this is the second time that Jesus destroyed something through a miracle. So that's interesting to note. But the other thing is, why was he so upset at this fig tree? Because it had leaves, but no fruit. You would think that's kind of odd. I mean, the tree is just a tree, right? Why, why would he be so upset about that? On the surface, it seems like Jesus just cursed this tree because it didn't give him any breakfast. And he's God, right? He could have made breakfast for himself anyway. But the scriptures tell us that it wasn't the season for figs. It says in verse 13, He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So the problem wasn't with the tree itself. The problem was that it professed to have figs, but it did not. It advertised that it had figs, but it really didn't. It had the outward form of being a healthy plant, but it really wasn't because it didn't produce any fruit. So here's the weird thing about fig trees. Fig trees produce two or three crops a year. They have early figs, which usually occur about the summertime. Then you have the main season for figs, which are in August and September. And then you have winter figs. So what's unique about figs is that the fruit comes out before the leaves. I can't recall many plants that do that where the, because usually it's the other way around, right? Usually you'll have the leaves and the flowers come out, and then the flowers will turn into the fruit. But the fig tree is unique this way, where it will only produce the fruit first, and then the leaves will come out. So what Jesus is teaching us through this story is that there can be individuals that have an outward form of prosperity, an outward form of godliness, but there's no fruit. So if it's a tree 
that doesn't produce fruit, does it serve a purpose? Is it truly a fruit-bearing tree if it doesn't produce fruit? So Jesus made it very clear that he was not pleased with this tree, that it was producing an outward appearance of fruit, but there weren't any. Is that a problem for us? Is it a problem for us to have the appearance of godliness and not produce fruit? Well, it is a problem. And so the best place to explore this a bit would be in the book of James. So if you can please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2, we can explore this a little bit further to understand more clearly what God is trying to show us through this. Let's read James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. The word says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This scripture is reinforcing what Jesus is making as a point with the fig tree. The fig tree was supposed to be producing fruit by the appearance that it gave. It wasn't the season for figs, and yet it was leafy like it was producing figs, and yet it had no fruit. What does that tell you about your personal spiritual life? Do we have the appearance of godliness? Do we have all the labels on ourselves as Christians, and yet we produce no fruit? Let me be clear, though, on one thing that James is not saying. He is not saying that works save you, okay? 
he is making it clear that faith without works is dead. So if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, there will be fruit. The fruit are not what save you. It is an outward confirmation. It is a demonstration of what you truly believe. We are not like the Catholics or the Jehovah's Witnesses or these other groups that believe working your way to heaven is something that has to be done. Because again, the problem with these ideologies is that it gives man too much credit. We don't have the power to save ourselves. We talked about that last time. We were dead in our trespasses, and dead people can't save themselves. Therefore, the overarching issue with needing to work your way to heaven in some degree is denying the sufficiency of Christ and denying the sufficiency of what he did on the cross. So basically, by believing that you need works to go to heaven, you're saying that Jesus was not enough. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was incomplete. And we cannot think that way because God is the only one who can save us. And so Jesus is showing us here that if you have the appearance of godliness and yet you have no fruit, you're a faker. He's showing you here that if you have the appearance of godliness and there is no fruit, there is no genuine spirit-led life. Perhaps you don't even have the Holy Spirit is what it looks like, because there's a lot of people in church today that fit the part. They look like they belonged in church, but they have never had the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in them. They have never tasted true salvation, because what defines a Christian? A true Christian is someone who has been born again. That is the only definitive thing that defines a Christian, someone who has been born again by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. If there is no fruit, then you are not a fruit-bearing tree, and therefore you are not saved, most likely. Or you are in serious error, and you are defying the God who saved you. And that's even worse. The same problem that Jesus is experiencing with this tree happens in church today. But let's move on to the next thing that he did after the fig tree. After the fig tree, it says that he went to the temple. And this is the temple, okay? The one that Solomon built, and then after it was destroyed, then Herod the Great rebuilt it. This is the same temple. This is the central hub of all of worship in the land of Israel. So we see that after the fig tree, his disciples were listening, and that's going to come up later, but they went to the temple, and he saw people who were buying and selling in the temple. So what Jesus discovered was that there are two groups of people in the temple. and not out. We're not talking outside the temple. We're talking about within the temple. We're talking about in the courtyards of the temple, going into the holy place. We have people who are money changers, you know, changing currency, like here where I am, you would change American dollars for Mexican pesos, that kind of exchange. 
And then you would have animals that you would buy for the sacrifice. So it turned into a marketplace and it was getting kind of crazy. But perhaps even worse than that, Jesus was angry because of the dishonesty of the people that were there. There was a reputation at the temple for how people were treating those who came on a pilgrimage to sacrifice in the temple. Most often, people would have to travel from afar and would be bringing their animals along the way in order to present a sacrifice to God. And according to God's law in the first five books of our Bible, it says that the animal must be clean. It must be without blemish. And so you would have someone who would stand outside the temple, and this person traveled many miles to get here with an animal without blemish, and they would do an inspection. And at the end of the inspection, they'd say, nope, this is not good enough. You cannot use this in the temple because, look, it has this little thing here. Hey, it's got this thing here. Its eye looks a little funny right here. They would be looking for things wrong, even if they weren't true. So this sacrifice is no good, but you're in luck, my friend. I happen to have an animal for sale here that is without blemish. So if you would like, I can sell you this one so you can sacrifice in the temple. And many times people had little to no choice and they would perform the exchange. So you have issues with dishonest people evaluating animals, but you also have exchange rate issues. If you look in the book of Proverbs, there are many Proverbs that talk about unbalanced scales, false scales, people trying to cheat people. And God hates that. And so you have the exchange rates, you have animals deemed to be clean, just so they can make a quick buck. And Jesus is upset. So if you don't think Jesus gets angry, this is where you're wrong. It is okay to be angry for the right reasons. Righteous anger is acceptable. And so if Jesus is our example, and he got angry that his house, his temple, was being defiled, what does that say about us in church today? So what did Jesus do when he saw that his house was a mess? He went and he was turning tables over. He was flipping tables. And in other Gospels, it says that money was flying everywhere. Animals were freaking out everywhere as he was flipping these tables over. And he was flipping over the seats of those who sell doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. So in his eyes, the temple was profaned. His name was profaned. He is the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Lord put his name on this temple. And so for the name of God to be defiled, he takes great offense to that. And what does he say when he's done doing all this? He says, is it not written? Meaning that there is a scripture related directly to what I'm doing here. And so he begins to quote something from the book of Isaiah, which says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. 
But instead of being a house of prayer for all the nations, he says that they made it into a robber's den. So, after we've talked about these two particular stories, I hope you're seeing that they are directly related. There is a condition that Jesus is trying to show us here through his word. So let's start from the bigger items here to the smaller items, okay? So what I'm referring to is, let's start with the church itself, and then we'll work our way down to us as individuals. So let's start with the church itself. And I'm talking about not necessarily your local church, which this does apply, but I'm talking about the church in general, the global universal church. Are we acceptable in the eyes of God? Are we clean? Are we seen as a house of prayer for all the nations? Because God has a particular way of how his church is supposed to be. The New Testament is full of this. He shows how the church is supposed to appear. And the last thing that Jesus wants is for his church, his bride, to look like the rest of this world. We were called out of that world, and we were called into being a holy people. And this story is a good illustration of what it looks like from the outside. Because we look at this and we're like, well, this is terrible. But are we any different, really? It says here that the people of Israel commercialized and secularized the temple of a holy God, and it was unrecognizable from what it was in the past. People were using this building to cheat people. They were stealing from people. They were using it as a sidewalk, if you will, to get from point A to point B. It was a means of fulfilling sacraments and fulfilling ritual, but there was no true worship in it. People were doing what they wanted to do and not what God wanted to do. If the church is a place where thieves and swindlers feel at home, there's something very wrong. Is that what your church is like? Are we so divided and so selfish that we have our preference above what God wants? Let me be very clear, ladies and gentlemen, that the church is not about you. The church is not about what you want. The church is what God wants from you. There are very specific laws and commands in the Bible as to how God wants to be worshipped. And the church is where those who have been called by his name are to gather together in community and be united towards fulfilling the commands of the Bible. Not only in personal conduct, sure, but also the other things that God has commanded in the New Testament. Things such as, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, never forsaking the assembling together, edifying each other in love and encouragement. All these commands that the New Testament shows us how the church is supposed to be run and what is of utmost priority. 
The people of Israel did not do that with the temple. And I can promise you that in most churches today, we are not doing it either. And that is sad. So imagine Jesus gets upset with your church today and would be going into your church and flipping tables over and making a mess of things because of what your church is doing. If you took a good, honest look at your church from a biblical perspective, do you think Jesus would walk in there and be pleased with what he sees? Or would he start cleaning house? Is your church a robber's den, or is it a house of prayer for all the nations? Only you and your church know that. But the reason the church exists is that it exists for God and for his name to be glorified. And if it is not, then the church does not need to exist. God left us behind so that we can worship him and that we can be obedient to him until he returns. So that's the illustration we have here from him overturning the tables. God is very zealous for his house, and we should have the same zeal for his house. But when we move to the story here about the fig tree, we go in a different direction here. Jesus knows the hearts of the people. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows why we do things. He knows what motivates us. And he knows how he wants to be worshipped. They all need to be in alignment. So here's the reality of things. We're to be a house of prayer in church, right? Because prayer is fulfilling. And what does it fulfill? It fulfills the relationship that God wants to have with us. And when we have that relationship and that desire to serve him, then we align with God's will. And we believe that what he is able to do, he really does it. It gives us faith. It increases our wisdom and knowledge of who God is. And if we align with his will, then we'll be doing what pleases him. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal to be pleasing and acceptable in God's sight and not just to serve ourselves? We are called to a higher purpose, and the higher purpose is to worship and serve an almighty God. So we are not to be like this fig tree, who have the semblance of godliness, but you have nothing to prove it. You don't act like it six days out of the week. You don't serve your local church. You don't obey the commandments of the Bible. You don't spend time with God regularly. You don't try to develop yourself. You don't try to witness to people. You don't try to come together as a community of believers where everybody in the church goes to the same building, but you don't really know each other. All of this is a slap in God's face. So we cannot have the appearance of godliness and yet have no fruit. We would be no different than this fig tree. And do you remember what happened to that fig tree after God spoke to it? Jesus went by that same tree later 
after he had cursed it. And what happened to the tree? In verse 20, it shows that the fig tree withered from the roots up. It was completely dead. Because that's what it really was the whole time. It was really dead at the core. Because there was no life in it. The Holy Spirit is the life. The Holy Spirit in you is what gives you fruit. And apart from Jesus Christ and his affections for you, you cannot produce fruit that pleases him. The Holy Spirit is the only one that, when you are born again, is able to give you the capacity to bear fruit. That's why Jesus says in verse 22, after Peter says, look, look at the tree you cursed. He simply says, before he goes into another topic, he simply says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. It sounds so simple, right? But you can't even get there without the Holy Spirit's intervention. So as we get near the conclusion, there's a couple of pieces of Scripture I want to refer to here in closing. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look with me at verse 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I asked you earlier, does God live in a dirty house? He shouldn't. And in fact, he won't. Because the reality is, is that when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, you are made clean in the sight of God. You are still a sinner, yes. Don't forget that. Don't forget that when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, you are now holy. You are a holy people. You don't have to act holy, because the holiness is not from you. You are holy because Jesus lives in you, and he is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy, and he's called Holy Spirit for a reason. Again, you have no power to save yourself. But now that you are born again, and now that you do have the Holy Spirit within you, there should be some responsibility we take. For one, there should be works. The works do not save you, but they are an outward demonstration of what you have come to believe. But secondly, Paul is showing us here in his writings that we have the responsibility to act holy ourselves, to pursue godly conduct, and to eliminate things that hold us back. He says to flee immorality. He doesn't say to resist it or to have a license to do whatever you want because we're holy now, but he says to flee from it. It says that the immoral man sins against his own body. You now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And since he is a holy God, 
He deserves a holy temple. Can you be that holy temple for him? Can you remember that you were bought with a price? And what was the price? What did God pay for you to be saved? He paid the ultimate price. He paid with the blood of the Son of God. He paid with the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. Therefore, with that in mind, Paul ends by saying, glorify God in your body. What is going on within you should be honorable to him. The inward issue is much greater than the outward issue. Let me share with you what Jesus said about that very thing. If you can go back to the book of Mark, we'll end with that. Come with me to Mark chapter 7. We'll start in verse 14. It says, After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That is the problem. The problem is what is going on inside of you. And if there is nothing holy going on inside of you, then there's something wrong. Either your allegiances are messed up, or you are not born again. You are not truly a Christian. It is not too late if you're not. The salvation is still available to you, if the Lord wills it. But you have to want it too. You have to understand that you need to be saved. You have to understand that we are so messed up as human beings that we need a Savior because we are not able to save ourselves. So my prayer and my encouragement for you is that you recognize that it's not what we put into our bodies that matters, but what comes out of us is what truly matters. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, for example. But more than that, the overflow of our heart will be put into our hands, into our feet as well what we choose to do for activities, how we choose or not choose to serve our church, 
how we interact with other people. All of that will be from the overflow of your heart. If you are defiled and you are in need of cleansing, the Lord is able to cleanse you. We need to be people of repentance. We need to be people of contrition, who are able to understand that we messed up and we need to start fresh. Spend time with God in prayer so that he can show you the direction that he has for your life, and the Holy Spirit will guide you. I hope you enjoyed today's lesson, and if you have any questions, as before, please send me an email. My email is in the description of this channel, and I would be happy to answer any questions or simply to pray for you. If there's anything I can do for you, please let me know. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.